Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. On a slight note just before we start this podcast, this conversation was recorded before the sad death of Christopher Alexander. He was an influential figure in the world of architecture, and his writings have been read by many hundreds of students, probably thousands over the years. I'd encourage you to go and read his books, especially A Pattern Language. It is in that context that Nikos and I had this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, well, Nikos, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's great to finally have you on. It's a pleasure, Bruce. And I first encountered your work with your book, which I did a previous video on, which I also have here, Theory of Architecture, among one of your many books, of course. Um, And I'm sure we can talk about some of the other ones as well, including the one uh, that you sent me, which was the new pattern language for growing regions. Uh, Yes, yes, yes. uh, Which I'm sorry to say I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I have flicked through it and read little bits of it, and it does look very good. Oh, Um, Bruce, I'm terribly disappointed in you. (laughs) I have lots of books to read, so it's uh, I barely get time to read anything these days with everything going on. But yes, I... What really struck me particularly about particularly a theory of architecture is just how much it delves into the the sort of the scientific and the mathematical side of architectural theory and then takes those principles and applies them to sort of practical rules of architecture as to how to design structural elements, formal elements, um, systemic elements, those kind of things within a building. So how did you get to the theory as it is uh, and your sort of general theory of architecture? And what's your sort of background that has led you to the position of what that theory has become? Well, Bruce, thank you for a very precise summary of what my book, A Theory of Architecture, contains, namely uh, some uh, the scientific derivation of certain rules for design And uh, design uh, has to be defined as a user-friendly design because uh, the term design uh, means very different things in the profession. Um, The type of design that I'm interested in is, is, uh, uh, is the organization of matter, spaces, surfaces, uh, structures that help human beings that help human health, help a human physiological health and help human psychological health. So this is very specific. Um, if, you, um, if you go to uh, many of our architecture schools, design has a totally different meaning, as you very well know. Uh, design could be a very uh, interesting and pretty graphic on a computer screen. Well, to me, that's, uh, it, that raises red flags. Uh, namely, it, it could be built as a building that is wonderful or that is totally um, ignorable or that causes harm to the health of the people who have to uh, enter it or pass by it or live in it and work in it. So this, to me, this is uh, uh, facing this dilemma when I w- became interested in architecture, uh, uh, this was an unacceptable state of, of affairs. So I felt that it was my duty to derive a theory of architecture that um, will give useful and practical rules for design. 
Mm. And your your background is sort of from a mathematical background, isn't it? So that's uh, uh, how does that feed into to the theory? Uh, well, I'm a mathematical physicist. <laughs> I have a PhD <laughs> in mathematical physics. Uh, my training in architecture comes strictly from my thirty-year uh, contact with Christopher Alexander. So I, uh, he is uh, sort of my guru. I learned as an apprentice, not actually doing buildings, but helping him on his uh, edit his book, The Nature of Order. So that's where my architectural training comes from. And um, of course, as you well know, Alexander has focused all his career uh, on um, on improving the well-being of the user of a building. And, and, and uh, since the 60s, when, when he was a young professional entering the field of architecture, he totally um, uh, rejected the um, abstraction of design that everyone was uh, 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 taken up with and fascinated with, and which is still occurring in, in, the, in the field today. So. Um, you said very kind things about uh, my book and my work. Uh, all of my work is is really uh, based and inspired by Christopher, um, and it was meant as a um, as a complement to his voluminous and, and profound work on uh, on uh, giving uh, rules for designing. Uh, very uh, healthy human environments. Uh, he, he spent his entire um, professional life doing that. And uh, uh, when I started to work um, with him in, on editing The Nature of Order, I realized that, that there was this giant void in the profession, namely, the, there was a big blank where theory of architecture was supposed to be. And uh, I know this is controversial, but, but, but that was my assessment. And I thought, well, uh, Christopher is, is working feverishly over decades to fill in this huge blank that professional architects don't seem to realize is a blank. Uh, and uh, I can fill in some pieces. So, you know, I can try to fill in pieces that Christopher is not filling in because there's, there's a lot of work to do, immense amount of work to do. And, and there still is. Yeah, well, I, I think... My impression of Christopher's work, Christopher Alexander's work, I mean, I've only read A Pattern Language. I haven't read the whole sort of series. But it seemed, and it was interesting to me that it was on my undergraduate reading list, albeit at the bottom after all of the sort of typical modernist books. I think the, the value, there's a lot of value in it. But for me, it made too many mistakes and missed the, the underlying theory the underlying sort of justifications for why it was saying what it was saying maybe that was in the other books and i missed it but your work seems to provide that underlying theoretical basis for a lot of the conclusions and the patterns in the sense of the pattern language um that that alexander developed and i think that it's almost there's been so much pushback from especially from the sort of modernist architectural um, side against Alexander's work that it almost needs like a reset, like a theoretical reset. It's, it's kind of the same with the um, Prince of Wales' stuff. Like he's so maligned and it's so um, sort of taboo to talk about anything that he has said or, or whether or not there's value in some of the things he said and where he's got things wrong and that kind of thing. Mm. That there, 
you almost need to take a more objective look. And I think what your work, for me at least, does is it sets out some the sort of the rules which you can follow and the principles that you follow, which can lead you to different conclusions. And they might be different conclusions from things that Alexander said or spe even specific things that you've said. But if you're following the same principles, you're going to lead to better results overall um, than if you're following even no principles or or um, misguided principles that come from other sort of architectural theories. There's enough in what you just said to occupy us for three hours. <laughs> talking. Uh, let me make a few points. First of all, you cannot judge Christopher's uh, over just by the pattern language. The pattern language is 1977. Okay, uh, I helped him to edit The Nature of Order, which is four volumes, about 2,500 pages, and those uh, were published in 2001 to 2005. Uh, you cannot judge Christopher's work just by the pattern language. You really need to read all of The Nature of Order. Uh, you were kind enough to, to, uh, to say that um, you found my own contributions uh, valuable and practical. Well, I come back to the fact that my own work was extremely strongly influenced by uh, Christopher's work and the pattern language because I, you know, I helped him to edit it. And, while edit and this was a 25-year task for me. <clears throat> while helping him to edit his book, uh, I did not write part of the book. He wrote the book, but helping him to edit it, to, to bring out his own ideas, I got uh, a, a large number of my own ideas. And those are what I turn into my own writings and theories. And, and as such, they're supposed to complement and, and, uh, and boost Christopher's uh, own conclusions. As I said, uh, I feel that my contributions are are filling in <clears throat> the blanks of, of architectural theory where there's a total waste, there has been a total wasteland for, for about a century. Uh, Christopher has filled some of that and I'm filling out parts of it. And um, there is no contradiction between uh, what Christopher says and what I uh, say. Uh, I think 99% um, is um, uh, complements each other. We fill out, we fill out the little pieces and I think that I can give some arguments where Christopher's argument is weak and where Christopher's argument is strong, I use his own arguments. So uh, that is my perception of, uh, of the field. Now, uh, another point that needs to be made is that uh, I did not stop with the theory of architecture. I have been just writing as fast as I can type and as fast as... Uh, uh, I can get collaborators to write joint papers. And phenomenal things have happened in the past 20 years since the nature of order has appeared. Because uh, poor uh, Christopher, uh, um, uh, since his stroke, has been unable to work for, for the last uh, 15 years. So he has not been able to profit from all the new um, uh, medical data that has come in. Uh, that has shown that uh, his intuitions and um, preliminary conclusions in the nature of order turn out to be mostly correct. You know, an astonishing validation of, of his intuition. Uh, th that material now is available uh, uh, because there is a group of, of researchers, uh, whom I, some of whom I collaborate with. We have been writing uh, scientific articles 
about how um, the latest uh, medical research and psychological research impacts on the on the uh, design and on the um, uh, neurological uh, feedback on the human body. So this is very recent work, and um, that also contributes to fill in the the wasteland of architectural theory. Yeah, I, you say in in a theory of architecture. Um something that I thought of for a long time, which is that there's not really a scientific culture or a peer review culture within architecture. Um, and that therefore there's no feedback loop in people looking for evidence as to what makes good architecture, what performs well in terms of its sort of function um, practically, but mainly psycho psychologically. Um, and therefore there's no sort of obvious way to for architects to say, okay, well, that building didn't perform the way it was meant to, that one performed better, what's the common factor, what's the variables, the sort of the normal scientific process just doesn't really exist within architecture, kind of understandably, because we're sort of, frankly, we're all artists rather than scientists, which are, I'm trying to change and I'm trying to encourage people to be more scientific in their thinking. Um, but that, as you say, that's what's always been missing is that evidence base of if you do this, then the outcomes, psychologically, well-being, urban development, I don't know, crime, any, any variable you want to pick are better. And that's, that's the evidence base that I would really love people to sort of engage with and, and, and to actually look at and to think what actually is, are the practical things that I can do that have measurable causal effects on people's well-being and on the ground. You expressed a very nice wish, but uh, I, think, uh, <laughs> I think that you are being too optimistic. Uh, the reason is that there, are, there is every indication that evidence base was thrown out of architecture, starting from the Bauhaus. And it was replaced by a cult-like adherence to certain visual typologies. So every time anyone has tried to introduce evidence based into architecture, it's, it doesn't work. It, it, it repels just like the duck repels water from its feathers. Uh, contemporary architecture uh, for the last hundred years uh, is designed to repel evidence base uh, data. Why, why do you think that is? because of the way contemporary architecture was set up in the 1920s. It went against the evidence because uh, the typologies introduced by the Bauhaus uh, really create anxiety. So as soon as you allow evidence-based, the first, the first result that tells you this architecture is bad for human health. <laughs> so you cannot possibly allow it. Uh, it, it threatens the, to, uh, with the entire system with collapse. Therefore, it has to be excluded. And, and uh, it is excluded by uh, using the power structure of the system. And it is a tremendously power, a powerful system because of the money it has made. But um, the money that the system has made uh, has nothing to do with the health of the users. It has been at the expense of the users. The, the building typologies of, of, um, of uh, modernism and right through deconstructivism 
are wonderful uh, money makers for the uh, building uh, and construction and uh, engineering industries and the materials industries. So all of that, we're talking about trillion dollar industries that are making a lot of money. Uh, this is, has nothing to do, and it was uh, uh, the health of the users was never a concern, even today. Uh, there's a lot of um, talk about the health of the users. Oh, that is uh, really public relations and, and ultimately uh, dishonest. Um, uh, architecture of the last century has never tried to adapt to the health of the users, with the possible exception of letting in more light as compared to 19th century, very dark and, and uh, ultimately unhealthy interiors. So letting in more light has some um, salutogenic uh, properties because uh, there are some antiseptic qualities to having more light. But aside from that, which is just one uh, positive point, everything else has been negative. So in, so, ter uh, in terms of exactly where those financial interests are, um, do you mean in terms of the founders of the movement and their sort of the basis of their the sort of intellectual basis and any monetary value they have from that? Or do you mean things like the actual construction cost of, sort of I guess, more modernist minimalist typologies being often lower by design than less minimalist um, typologies? And therefore, that being a sort of ongoing financial interest for construction companies and developers. Well, I mean both. Uh, let's take present day. Um, you have global construction that uh, has a certain way of doing things. It is a status quo. It is a, a, an architecture industrial complex that has um, its methods of building uh, glass and steel skyscrapers and uh, uh, a lot of poured concrete, the concretization of, of buildings is making a lot of money. There is no need to change anything. In fact, uh, any thought of perturbing the system is a threat to the immense profits that it is making. Uh, when someone like me or my friends uh, claims that the product, the actual built product, is unhealthy for, for users, psychologically unhealthy. Well, that's, it's a threat to, to the profit because you have, you have a machine that is working to produce um, an Im immense volume of built fabric all over the world. And it's a machine that is working very well and efficiently according to the profit motive. And there are many uh, uh, interlinked um, industries the materials, producing the steel, or producing the plate glass, or the concrete, you know, tearing up mountains in order to, to, uh, to make concrete. So, you know, why change a profitable system? Mm. Uh, just because some uh, peripheral people say it's not healthy. Well, who cares? You know, <laughs> who cares about the, the, the residents of these uh, giant skyscrapers, you know, in China or in uh, anywhere in the world? Yeah, what is the solution to it then? A more regulatory one, whereby the, and this is the route that the um, the government in the UK here seems to be going down with um, its latest changes in our planning system uh, or proposed changes. Um, is it a, is it a thing that ultimately has to be mandated by um, by governance structures, whether that's local or, or national governments, or is it something that can be marketized? Like, can you? Is it possible to marketize 
um, architecture of the sort that would be good for human health? Well, being uh, an American, I'm more of a, a free market capitalist, and uh, I have my hopes in the market driving humane architecture. But it may be a vain hope. Now, the, the, other, the other possibility you mentioned is the status solution, regulations. It looks good on paper, but uh, wherever I see uh, such uh, regulations uh, applied, there's always um, corruption and ways to get around them. Uh, the worst um, and the most egregious mistakes are made in places where existing legislation uh, uh, really um, tries to protect the user, and, and those are totally flaunted, uh, either by clever lawyers going around or in, uh, in, um, in other countries, a suitcase full of cash, <laughs> and forget all the all the well thought out legislation it just goes out the window yeah well I, I think at least in the uk we're lucky that we're we have very low levels of corruption generally um at least in probably in the building industry as, as much as in any other industries um uh, bruce I, I totally disagree with you um the destruction of the british architectural heritage occurred through corruption in what in the 70s in the 70s People will, were paid off, and the suitcases full of money, pounds in this case, were uh, distributed to politicians by construction companies and by architects. I, I mentioned that in my recent article just a few weeks ago in The Critic, looking at the root causes of the architectural destruction of, of British heritage in cities. It was just driven by corruption. And uh, several people went to jail in the 1970s, but unfortunately not enough because uh, two or three people went to jail, uh, politicians and architects, but um, many, many others did the same uh, destruction all over the UK and uh, lived very happily with a large bank account. Mm. Well, to bring in a, back my optimistic note, it does seem to me that there is beginning to be a move against some of the more negative aspects of late 20th century architecture, such as concrete is now falling out of favor, largely on sustainability grounds. Um, timber framing is becoming more popular, mostly to do with glue lamb. Um, and as you say, daylight's always been a, a popular thing. And urban greening in particular, which is a particular interest of mine around um, biophilic design, um and sort of um not biomimicry but uh biointegration i suppose the that those things seem to be becoming more popular and there's more of an interest in them generally so do you think we are at the beginning of a turning point where people are starting to value especially more sustainable architecture whether it's sustainable psychologically or to do with carbon and the environment and nature is that are we at the beginning of that turning point, do you think? I'm afraid I don't think so. <laughs> the same guilty people who created inhumane environments have caught on to buzzwords in order to continue their hegemony on the construction industry. So uh, they are stealing what my friends and I publish as biophilic design twisting it in a perverse way in order to continue to create inhumane environments. 
you say wood is, is inferior, but yes, yes, but I see wood being used in the most perverse inhumane way. Wood is the most beautiful material, and yet it is used in a perverse way because there is a, a, a perverse um, um, uh, continuation of a certain design, those design images coming back from the 1920s, they're inhuman. And it doesn't matter if you use concrete or wood, you know, wood just makes it slightly better. It improves it by 5%. But, but the, the basic idea of the shapes and the surfaces and the volumes, the basic idea is screwed up. Mm. As Christopher Alexander pointed out in, in his, uh, in his uh, famous uh, debate with Peter Eisenman, the entire way of thinking of architecture students for decades, for generations is screwed up. I mean, their brain is rewired in order to regurgitate these inhumane images and spaces and surfaces. Um, so um, uh, what you are, are mentioning are positive signals, but they're not going to make more than 5% change for the better. Uh, what is needed is, is for architects and architecture students to, re to learn about what adaptive humane architecture is really about. Well, that's certainly why I'd recommend everyone, all, all architecture students, to read your book and books um, and learn those things in particular. And more, most importantly, I think, to understand the theory at the basis of why they should do certain things, not just saying churn out this form or that form or that design or this design, but actually why it is that they make certain choices as to what uh, forms they're going to create, what layouts they're going to create, what what sort of a, their aesthetics will be. Um, so move, moving on to into that a bit more, there's a lot of talk, especially in the UK and the government, about the word beauty, which has been regurgitated since being sort of banned from talking about for about 30 years probably and um, there's still a sort of recoil whenever you mention the word beauty and especially to other architects um as if it's this sort of horrible concept that you can't possibly touch because it's all it's all very twee and it's all very like kitsch and very uh, unfashionable what does beauty mean to you um on a sort of theoretical level and a sort of practical level Beauty is a dangerous word because of its uh, uh, marginalization by the architecture profession and by the art profession. It started from the, from the uh, art um, industry uh, that sold um, the most uh, repellent, disgusting, uh, inhumane um, products and label them beautiful. So, so it's, that was after a few decades, then the word beauty has no meaning because you have sabotaged the word beauty by, by using its opposite in order to undo what beauty originally meant. Now, uh, if you want to use beauty in, in its original sense, uh, it means uh, uh, something that affects your body biologically, uh, um, certain um, experiences, um, neurological experiences have a positive effect on the body and those are salutogenic in the long term, they are healing in the long term. So we can classify beauty as the, as the uh, quest for being surrounded and with, um, uh, environments, uh, objects, uh, colors, spaces, um, uh, geometrical configurations that produce a healing effect on the body. 
that is um, the definition that my friends and I use. But of course, it's it's, it's not the universal definition because then you ask uh, someone, a contemporary artist, uh, is this beautiful? They say, no, 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 this is not beautiful. This is ugly because this is old fashioned. What is beautiful is this. And then you look at something that, that creates horror and uh, um, it, it raises your blood pressure and it dilates, uh, it, it constricts your pupils and uh, uh, it raises the skin, uh, the skin conductivity. You know, all these are body signals of fight or flight. These are stress generated. Um, uh, uh, these are objects that generate stress that are bad for your body and therefore bad for your health in the long term. So uh, to mislabel something as beautiful that creates this uh, reaction is, is a total fraud and people don't realize it. So. I mean, you know, this is not a, a good explanation, but we cannot talk about beauty when you have something that is good for the body labeled as beautiful and the, the diametrically opposite thing that it creates harm to the body in the long term also labeled as beautiful by a certain um, part of the population. And the media, of course, is, is totally complicit in this uh, confusion and, uh, and, and continues to, to confuse the public the public is just totally bewildered because they, they, they see the media and they see something that's totally repellent labeled as beautiful. Well, what are they to make of it? You know, their own gut feeling, their visceral feeling is very old fashioned. They say, ah, this is beautiful. You know, a baby is beautiful. It, it, it creates this warm feeling in me. You know, I love a baby, you know, not only my own baby, but anybody's baby, you know. It creates this this neurological, uh, a positive neurological reaction. It's the reason we, um, it's the reason we devote energy and effort in order to raise our children because we love them. Okay, and it's the reason we fall in love with someone because we look at them and we attach to them. We we see that they're beautiful. Okay, maybe the, maybe it's not the most beautiful person in the world, but we attach. To something that we consider beautiful, and then we, you know, if we get married, we we devote the rest of our life and go through problems uh, of of keeping the marriage because of of some dimension of beauty. Now, mm. when you come, when you have the architectural establishment telling you that some horrible, anxiety-inducing building is beautiful, everything is confused. We don't know what to believe anymore. Yeah, well, it amazes me that given how much focus there is on mental health now, quite quite rightly, the sort of the the aesthetic wellness and the effect that the built environment has on mental health has not even been touched on by sort of mental health advocates or organisations. Like it's completely glossed over, uh, but the amount of effect that it has. And I'm sure, there's, as you said before, there's increasing evidence on these things because people are actually starting to do the studies on them. The effect that, that the built environment has on people's mental health and how, how they feel on a day-to-day -day basis, especially given the increasing urbanization of our population, that is just absolutely massive. So why, why is it that given that, that no one seems to have, have latched onto that idea and, and focused on the built environment as a device for improving people's mental health? Well, Bruce, uh, here you need to uh, be very specific about when you say, why has no one? Uh, there is a, a, a fairly sizable group of researchers, 
myself included, who are publishing furiously results that show what type of environment is good for our mental health and for our physical health. So it's not that we are just sitting and doing nothing. The, the information is being published. Uh, we are collecting results. Some of us are actual uh, uh, neuroscientists, medical doctors who are doing research experiments and we are connecting this. We are uh, uh, writing review articles in architectural language. So everything is available. Now, the public, of course, is, 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 is immune to all of this. The public needs to have some spokespeople alert the public is to, you know, listen, you know, this is very important. It's here. The evidence is here. These people are talking about it. Well, the media has totally failed in its, uh, and its supposed role of being a watchdog because it's not uh, uh, it's not informing the public. Uh, and on the other hand, the uh, architectural industrial complex would like to bury all of this information. I mean, they read this information. I know this from from my, my colleagues. You know, on the other side of the divide, you know, they read so as to pick up an occasional thing an occasional result that they can twist, misuse in order to continue their, their hegemony of, of the um, and dominance of the field. So it is, they're not interested in science. The architectural establishment is totally uninterested in science. And anyway, they would, they would know science if you hit them on the head, but they can recognize technology. So they can, they can recognize a technological tool that they can abuse in order to further the power of the system and continue the status quo. So I'm afraid that's, that's what is happening. And um, the, the situation I, I just uh, described is fairly bleak. So it may help to answer your question of why isn't anything <laughs> happening? Well, <laughs> these are some reasons. Yeah, no, I definitely share your frustration at the, um, the general architectural establishment's unwillingness to be in any way scientific or get involved in in science, scientific papers and, and reading science and actually understanding causal mechanisms properly. Um, one interesting part of this in, in the UK is part of the reforms that our government is currently proposing include a proposal for local authorities or local governments to have to produce design guides, which our planning system um, would be subject to and there will be like a national design guide that will be a guide to the guides effectively um and exactly how that feeds in because it will ultimately be decided by I, I suppose by elected officials or by members of the public or design review panels or certainly have more of a public feedback i'm hoping you might start to get those general members of the public your joe joe blogs and joe average on the street saying hang on, that's really ugly. That's really beautiful. We want our local area to have lots of beautiful buildings in it. We're going to put it in the design guide that says you have to do X, Y, and Z, and you can't do these other things. And hopefully that will provide a feedback mechanism that will enable um, or encourage, or I suppose even require beauty as defined by those people to exist to a greater extent and to not be caught up in, in in sort of ugly ugly structures and ugly buildings defined by people who define them that way there is a, a bright hope for the uk and that's in uh, my friend nicholas boy smith 
who is a spearheading a movement, very, very practical, down-to-earth movement, which is good, on um, improving the quality of the built environment through very practical ways, through incentives, through developers. This is where it starts, and through uh, the um, um, uh, and, and, uh, information that's given in a digestible form to local councils so they can make an informed decision. So I have hope, if anything is going to change, um, I have hope in, uh, in Nicholas, uh, who worked with the late Sir Roger Scruton. And uh, Sir Roger Scruton was, um, of course, vilified and, and totally marginalized. Now, he happened to be a conservative philosopher, but his, his assessment of, of beauty and ugliness in the environment really had nothing to do with, with his conservative part of the philosophy. It's, it's, it's common to, to everyone uh, because these are biological, um, uh, common biological responses of all the population, all, all ordinary people who have not, who had not had a, a, an educational imprinting to change their, their natural uh, um, uh, emotional response to forms. Uh, but uh, look what happened, poor Sir Roger, you know, just before he died, he was uh, tricked and, and uh, his, uh, his career was, was made, uh, uh, it was a terrible thing to do to, to a, a great philosopher, uh, even if you did not agree with his conservative uh, viewpoints. He, he was a great philosopher and he spoke for a, many, uh, a large number of people uh, across the, the political spectrum. Yeah, well, so the sort of political tie-ins of this have always been interesting to me because I I've see it almost more as a left-wing issue um, just because you think of like Morris and um, Ruskin back in the early early 20th century, they were very much men of the left who were promoting sort of beauty and craftsmanship and the sort of the old world and the uh, sort of the, the um, culture of craft and that kind of thing. And it's, there's always this tie-in now between traditionalism and traditionalists and conservatism. And I don't think that's a fair tie-up because it's like, it's the architectural establishment tends to and I get this from my, most of my architectural friends as well, they dismiss people uh, who don't follow the norm or who, who look to the past for inspiration or, or sort of theoretical justifications as traditionalists, and you, just, you can just dismiss them for being traditionalists. And I also don't think that the traditionalists help, help themselves or help the cause, often by going full hog into traditionalism like there are there's a sort of subset of architects who only do traditional buildings are very open about the fact they only do traditional buildings whether that's neoclassicism or whatever else um and don't try and find a midpoint um and there's and therefore there's this idea that's sort of come up that either you go all the way one way or you go all the way the other way either you're completely a traditionalist or you're completely a modernist and there's no possibility of any cross blending or any in between and i hope that people can see that that's not the case and that if you follow the right principles as in similar to the like the principles that you lay out in your in your book that you can end up with a form of architecture that is not traditionalist that is not modernist 
but is something that's completely new and very, very good for people's well-being. Again, Bruce, what you just said, we could argue about for three hours. <laughs> uh, let me try to address a few points. First of all, is the great deception. The great deception, which is just a, a um, power play in order to maintain the status quo and to keep the system alive, which is a very bad system producing very poor architecture. That ploy is to immediately polarize things according to uh, politics. Good architecture has nothing to do with politics. You know, either left or right. I have friends on the left and, and on the middle and on the right who want wonderful humane architecture. The political orientation has nothing to do with it. However, if you brand good architecture as either left or right, then you can attack it. And that's exactly what the system does because they want to destroy it because it is a threat. It threatens the inhumane uh, establishment status quo architecture that is uh, that is prevalent all over the world. The, the star architects uh, create this inhumane architecture, and therefore the star architects want to attack. Uh, this is traditional uh, or, or leftist. I have some some uh, so, uh, some friends who say, "Well, it's you know, it's all this is communist." But, you know, it's not. You you can you can uh, uh, tag something in order to attack it. That is um, unethical, uh, uh, but very effective. So we have to get around that. It's very difficult to get around that because once once you tag something as political, either on the left or on the right, and then you start attacking it, then everyone's blood gets very hot, and uh, it's it's impossible to use reason. That's why in, in all this enormous volume of writings that that my friends and I have, have presented, you, you will you will never see any political illusion, because there is none. This is science. It has to do with the human body and, and the society. Okay. It, it has nothing to do with politics. Um, it is difficult to get, to get around this. Uh, uh, only um, education will help, but education has totally failed because uh, there, there are uh, these trigger signals. The trigger signals, well, let me, let me get to, this, to, to the, to the uh, dichotomy that you mentioned earlier of, 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 of the great lie that something has to be either very traditional or modernist. That's a big lie, but that's very, um, um, it is convenient for the modernists to say, well, you know, either you hire a very traditionalist architect who does uh, classical architecture, and there are some of the finest practitioners in the world happen to be British, okay, and you can hire them to do a wonderful classical building, which happens to be very humane. So that's one solution, but it's not the only solution. Uh, Alexander's school of architecture has no columns and pediments. It, is not, it does not look traditional, however, it looks and feels old fashioned. So this is even more important. When you create a healing environment from uh, materials, a building or an urban uh, space, it feels old fashioned. That feeling is what your body is telling you that you are connecting to it biologically. Now the modernists and the contemporary architects want to avoid any of that old-fashioned feeling because they want to avoid the neurological connection. They are seeking an anxiety feedback 
from the structures. You can grab a star architect and squeeze him or her, and you will never get them to actually admit to this. But what they want is the anxiety feedback to make people feel anxious. That is the goal of, of their designs. Do you think because they're consciously is, doing that, though, or is it just a result of, of something else? It's the result of training to create um, anxiety-inducing architecture straight from day one of architecture school, where there were a condition, like the Pavlovian dogs were conditioned. From the very first class, they were shown pictures on the screen. This is good architecture. Well, this happens to be anxiety-inducing. So they go for four or five years seeing all the stuff, and then they learn to create anxiety-inducing architecture. You know, and you have someone like me telling them, you know, what every single building you've designed creates anxiety. Well, they totally dismiss what we are saying. You show them the medical data. You show them the, the EEGs. We don't care about that. You know, we're famous star architects. We make a lot of money. We get paid uh, by governments and by um, by uh, private corporations to make big buildings. You know, you you are uh, as insignificant as insects. We don't care what you say. You know, we we are we have the power. We don't have to pay attention to what you say. But well, then, well, they then, are. Um, sorry, they are beholden. Even the star architects are beholden to clients ultimately, because most of them aren't developers. So. Is there a role for the big developers of the world and the big clients to say, we're not going to stamp this anymore, we want something better? Or are they just not incentivized to do that for financial reasons or any other reason? Uh, clients, the, the big clients have no incentive to um, pay attention to what we are saying because the big client gets seduced into the power game. The big client wants their name the big client wants to get the, the best available, the most flashy star architect. They're not going to, to uh, commission a very modest architect who will say, listen, you know, I will create a modest building that is good for the users, that people will actually feel good working in this building, that will have a far lower um, uh, uh, sick um, uh, percentage of, of, uh, of absentee uh, workers. Clients don't care about that. Clients get seduced by just brute raw power. They say, we want our building to stand, uh, to be shown in the, in the, uh, in, in the uh, uh, web zines of architecture and to look like something that is really striking and new and, uh, and powerful. And we want to express our power. When you try to express power, then you get into the part of the brain that goes back to the uh, to the predatory and the aggressor. Something that feels nice does not express power. Something that creates anxiety expresses power. Okay, we have that part of our brain. We are predators. Okay, for millions of years, we walked around and we hunted animals. You cannot kill an animal unless you have that predatory part of the circuits in the brain. Well, those are the ones that are triggered today by the star architects to create their inhuman designs and they're triggered in the client. The client says, you know, I, I have this billion dollar corporation and I want the headquarters to really show power. And I'm not going to have a modest looking building. It doesn't show power. 
I want the building that really looks like, well, <laughs> it exerts power on the people. Mm. It always struck me that, that that felt like a continuation of the artistic avant-garde with like um, Duchamp's urinal and that kind of thing, where you're just, you have shock value. And I think you're right. You're, the thing about power is very prescient as well. That it's, I remember hearing a conversation with the developer of the Shard who was basically just saying, I want to build the tallest building in London and I want it to be big and bold and striking. And beauty doesn't even come into it or, or sort of... I remember the first time I stood at the base of the Shard in the public realm around there and thinking how unbelievably awful it was. Um, and it's, it's, it's difficult to sort of, I suppose, get out of that, get people out of that mindset, because as you say, they're, they're not incentivized. You're right there. They're incentivized to have the big shiny building that gets on the internet and people share pictures of it. And they can say to their board members, look at our shiny building. Isn't it nice? Um, and that's sort of, there's a lack of humility, if you will, in, in the, in the commissioning of those sorts of buildings. My dear Bruce, the whole point is the opposite of humility. The whole point is to be a, a sadistic psychopath as much as possible, <laughs> to, to have a building that expresses this sadistic power. And you see the success of this, you know, this is a ploy that's highly successful because, uh, when a, a corporation now wants to hire an architect to build their headquarters, again, they will not go to someone who will promise them a modest, humane building. They will go to one of the star architects who has a track record of creating sadistically uh, oppressive buildings that show this raw power. Mm. And uh, you mentioned some buildings. Okay, so do these, have these architects been disqualified? because of the monstrous inhumane structures that they have erected. No, they, they made their, their uh, reputation so that uh, uh, more new clients are just begging them, please create another monstrosity for my uh, corporation or uh, you know, a government building in uh, say, Bazookistan. You know, we want our government building to show that we are the most uh, powerful and, and avant-garde government in the world. Mm. Well, I do. I have always thought that the RIBA should adopt the Carbuncle Cup because the Carbuncle Cup is just fantastic, and it's it's just the ability to have like a Raspberry Award for architecture is just fantastic. And I think that should be a professional thing. I think the the professional bodies around the world, the AIA, the RIBA, all, all the others, should have awards for bad buildings and the and the sort of the professional embarrassment of being awarded one of those should be so significant that you can't possibly create something terrible um i'm afraid that doesn't work um, my friends in uh, scandinavia they have the uh, turkey award for the worst building and they awarded yearly to the worst building and uh, so far none of the architects have have none of the architects awardees have actually come to the ceremony to claim the award, <laughs> which is not surprising. So, you know, they have been awarding this for several years in, um, uh, in, in Sweden. Mm. Uh, the, the RIBA should propose a, um, uh, the Josef Mengele Award for inhuman experiments on people. But of yeah. course, you know, that's high, it's a highly controversial thing. Uh, there is enough medical, medical evidence to make this not such a crazy idea. 
Mm. Well, one one of the mechanisms that I have seen occasionally work to stop really bad buildings is the ability. Uh, this works in our country I, to some extent. The ability of high-ranking politicians to call in buildings. So normally, our housing secretary or our planning secretary or whoever it is can call in the biggest buildings if they think that they need reviewing or if they think there's something wrong with them um, and basically veto them or say, no, you need to go back and change it. And this has happened on a few occasions. And all that takes is one elected individual who's not normally an architect or a member of the architect profession. Yes, they're a politician, but they've been elected. Um, and if that existed at more levels, yes, you might still get some corruption, of course. Um, but there might be more individuals who are, have the power to individually say on certain schemes, whether it's mayors or anyone like that, no, this is not a good design. This does not reflect the values that we want in our city or our town. Go back to the drawing board, try again. There are several things one can say about this. Uh, one is that I have hope in uh, Nicholas Boy Smith being able to educate the political class to be able to take such decisions because your average politician is totally confused and is pressured from both sides. On the, on the one hand, you have one of us, one of our friends saying, listen, no, this is a horrible building. It's going to, to make people sick in it. Please, you know, stop it. On the other hand, you have the press saying, this is a marvelous design by a very famous person is going to really put uh, the city on the map or is going to be one of the great buildings of the 21st century, etc. So, you know, the politician is, is not trained to make such decisions. And, and they have this ter tremendous pressure from both sides. And, and the biggest pressure comes from the negative side because the negative side has all the money and, and all, the, uh, all the resources, the public relations uh, saying, you know, Britain must uh, uh, be seen to be progressive in architecture, so we need to build this monstrosity. Is there, uh, is there to some extent a typological problem in the sense that in the past, like the number of buildings or the range of, of uses of buildings was fairly small. Like there's a lot of, obviously a lot of housing, a lot of residential buildings. Um, and then you had large public buildings like courthouses, I suppose, banks, churches. Whereas these days you've got sort of out of town shopping centers, you've got stadiums, you've got airports, you've got um, car parks, you've got very high rise buildings for because of density. You've got a lot more typologies, I suppose, large office buildings as well. A lot more typologies where perhaps it's more difficult to make those typologies beautiful. I always think if you said to Louis Sullivan, can you create one of your Chicago-style buildings, but it's got to be 80 stories, could he have done that beautifully? Is, is that kind of thing possible? Or could you, if you said to Frank Lloyd Wright, can you create a, I don't know, a, a out-of-town shopping center that's not horrific? Does the nature of those things lead to make it more difficult, at the very least, for to, to create architectural beauty? The answer is no, very straight no. And you don't have to go back to Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan. I think that you, I mean, I, I've just seen some pictures of your work. You're a practicing architect. I think that someone can hire you to build something, anything, you know, shopping mall. 
And by applying humane design principles, you can make it a rather beautiful uh, environment. It has to do with the geometry, the path structure, the spaces, the, the materials, the connectivity. You know, you can make it as beautiful as possible, far, far more beautiful than what uh, your average product is going to be. So it's not the typologies, it's, it's, it's not the, um, it is the, it is the, 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 the blank, the, the theoretical wasteland that we began this conversation with. Yeah, wow. The, the, the knowledge, the tools in which to create a humane, responsive environment has been gutted, has been thrown out. And this is what we have filled in. And so there is all this information now is available for a sensitive architect to apply to make something, you know, rather beautiful. Mm, well, I hope more students will engage with that kind of thing. Uh, like weirdly for me, it wasn't until the middle of my second year that I started to sort of question the the orthodoxy and the status quo that I was being taught. And ironically, it was Pugin's contrasts that reading that, um, where he's arguing for Gothic against classicism, um, that sort of set me on the path of of thinking about more about the theoretical basis of what what the design principles taught in architectural schools are. Um, why don't we talk a little bit more about uh, the actual architectural elements themselves on a more micro level? Um, do you want to take a five minute break and come back and do that? Sure. Yeah. Right, so we are back. Let's go into a little more of the smaller scale kind of side of architecture and how it relates to your theories. One of the things that I've always found to be a very missing element from architecture, especially as it relates to the natural world, is fractals. Um, now, you talk a lot about fractals and fractal geometry in your work, and I think you refer to it uh, often as structural order. Um, can you explain how what is structural order and how does it fit into your theory and how does it relate to fractals and fractal geometry? Yes, a structural order is the geometrical side of, um, of healing design. And one of several components happens to be fractals. So fractals is not all of structural order. It is one component. Um, fractal, a fractal is, uh, is a, a structure or a visual or a physical structure that has um, substructure. So when you mag magnify it, you see more and more structure. The most uh, mathematically pure fractals are self-similar. So you, you magnify it by, say, three times, and then it looks almost the same. And then you magnify it again by three times which is nine times, it looks almost the same. You magnify it again by three times, it looks almost the same. And you have the uh, obvious examples of a fern leaf that obeys exactly this, or a cauliflower, or a Romanesco broccoli. And um, so these are uh, uh, the human lung, which you don't normally see, but you can look at a picture of the human lung, or, or uh, uh, cracks on, uh, on clay, um, uh, you know, on a waterbed, a dry waterbed. So th these are fractal structures. And when we look at nature, everything in nature has um, structure. The more you magnify, the more structure you see. So some of this is statistical fractals, namely when you magnify it by, uh, say, t uh, 30 times, it doesn't look the same, but it's still wonderfully complex because things are happening. 
there's nothing empty. If there's something empty, there's nothing happening. It, it says not only is, is it dead from the biological point of view, but there's no structure there. So that, that is very, it's very rare to have something like that in nature and certainly not in uh, nothing that's alive. Uh, a living structure requires all these uh, mechanisms that act on different uh, levels of scale. So that's fractal structure. Uh, you, of course, uh, any uh, architect uh, listening to this will say, oh, well, that's absolute nonsense. Uh, we want purity. We want the whole wall of the building to be absolutely smooth and shiny. Why? It's non-fractal. The human brain evolved to connect with and interpret fractal structure. Such a huge non-fractal structure makes us feel uneasy. It's bad for our uh, health, eventually. But, you know, then the architects, again, from day one, the architecture student is shown these images and say, this is beautiful, we have to build like this. Why? Well, there are books and books full of stupid explanations about uh, ethics and uh, uh, the uh, spirit of the age and modernism that's going to save the world. But all that is garbage. It's, it, it does not uh, undo the um, negative psychological um, reaction we have to the non-fractal structures. What's the yeah. actual, uh, while we're on that, what's the actual evidence base on that? Like, in terms of how, what experiments have people done, what have results have actually come up in terms of analyzing um, sort of the degree of fractility as it relates causally to psychological uh, variables? Yes, uh, fractality, well... <laughs> Uh, just look at my latest paper with uh, Neil Buras, uh, Anna Brielman, and Richard Taylor, uh, published in um, uh, Urban Science, and we review uh, 230 publications. So, so anyone who wants to go to the original um, experiments that show why we need fractal in order to connect can go to that. And that's just, you know, a latest paper that I happen to co-author. There are hundreds of, of, of studies that, that show that. And my co-author, Richard Taylor, happens to be one of the world's experts on fractals. You know, he, he did the fractal analysis of Jackson Pollock's paintings. So there's, in, in terms of what people actually understand architecturally by fractal buildings, obviously there's, there's self-similar examples, like, I suppose, like Jackson Pollock's paintings are, are so, like, directly self-similar. I remember in a previous paper I used, I used Gothic architecture because they sort of use the same Gothic arch at multiple, multiple scales. What are the best examples of good sort of high fractility architecture that exist? Um, and how, what, are, what are the elements that if you're designing a building you have to think about to give it a higher degree of fractality? This fractality. A fractality, um, sorry. No, just, just go by your gut instinct. You know, if you can get away from the uh, modernist brainwashing, just go with your gut instinct. And, and um, paying attention to the tectonics will give you different scales because things happen at different scales. And then you can check those scales saying, well, is there something happening at three meters? Yes, because of the structure of this thing. Is there something happening at one meter? Maybe no. Well, let me introduce some, uh, some ornament uh, at one meter. Is there something happening at 30 centimeters? Yes, because you know, the, the, the windowsill has to be. Is there something happening at one third of that at, at 10 centimeters? Yes. Is there something happening at three centimeters? No. So let me introduce something, you know, like a molding, which incidentally is good, you know, to keep uh, uh, air currents from flowing in. 
so um, this is very approximate. What's, what's important is, is to allow for the materials themselves to express the fractality and then to have it sort of, once you're aware that it's good to have a complete fractal to go in and put in the missing uh, parts. Now you notice that I'm, I'm giving a definition of ornamentation. Uh, if there is a missing scale at three centimeters, so you go in and ornament that, and you create the scale by ornament. You know, it is not needed for the tectonics. However, when we look at the uh, traditional buildings, nobody thought this way. The three centimeters was there because you needed that. You needed that trim in the corner. Well, this, I guess, is the one of the issues, is, is a lot of people might say, well, why would I put something extra there that doesn't have a function when it's unnecessary? Like, I didn't, like a lot of ah. traditional building systems might have um, orna so-called ornamental elements that were actually there because they were practical or functional. Um, whereas these days, oh, you can clad everything in and it can be super smooth. I'm playing devil's advocate, of course. Um, why... And obviously, and they would say, "Oh, well, it's going to be more expensive." Like, "Oh, you're going to do your turn your nice smooth wall with a single cladding across the whole thing, and you're going to start introducing all these little bits, and they're all fiddly, and your labor costs are going to go up, and la 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 la." And why should I pay more when there's no direct benefit to me? How would you uh, answer that? Yes, let me demolish your devil's advocate <laughs> argument. First of all. It is absolutely necessary because the human brain requires a fractal for well-being. Unconsciously, we feel the lack of a certain scale in the structure. So in the long term, that could make us, that could make us uneasy and could lead to a, a worsening health. So it is the, the, the architect's argument is totally false. It is not, it is something is functional if it's good for your health, if it's good for the body, if it's good for the user. So you need the fractal scales because of human health. Now, with the second part of the argument, which you, which you told me, which is the usual false argument, is that it's going to cost more. Well, today we can mass produce anything we want. It's not going to cost more. It actually costs more to insist on some ridiculous uh, uh, minimalist precision in order to, 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 to come up to a join over the window. It's far cheaper to have less of tolerance and then to put a, a scale there, which is just a trim. It, it cuts down costs. Yeah, I always think this. There's a reason why um, cornices and uh, skirtings and all these kind of things exist, because you do things really roughly and then you stick something over the top that covers up the gap. And it, as you say, it's that the... The extra degree of precision required to not have that covering and not have that tolerance it exceeds the additional cost of installing the covering, of exactly. what, or whatever it is, or or do, yeah. So it's, it, it, but it's difficult to make that argument because people can say, oh well, you labor this cost and that cost per hour and this cost per square meter and la la la, and we can't quantify the psychological benefit. You can't say oh, you're meeting this building regulation and that building regulation because you've met these dimensions or whatever it is. Like, there's not a psychological well-being equivalent of that. Like, it's a much softer thing to measure. Well, my dear Bruce, we have several decades of misinformation to work against. 
because uh, all all of the um, misleading um, information on on construction detail uh, is um, codified into the system. So people are are shocked to hear the argument I just made to you that that we need a particular scale, even if it's ornamental, for a human well-being. But then who are we building for? Are we building for an antiquated set of building codes or are we building for the well-being of the individual and the, the user? It's time for us to totally revise the way we, we see the, the function of a building. The function of a building is for the health of the user. If that point can go across, we would have solved a lot of uh, questions. Yeah, well, the the idea that the function, part of the function of a building is psychological as well as just practical is so alien to a lot of people, including our, especially architects. The idea that it should, yeah, the idea that it should have that function, not and, and not only on an individual level, but on an urban level. Exactly. That you have the sort of, as, as people often say, architecture is the only art you can't avoid. Because you can't, if you're walking down a street, you can't not see a building. Or if, you're, if you have to go into a particular building for whatever reason, you can't avoid being affected by that art, if you call it art. Um, so therefore, it has a sort of, on a more moral and philosophical level, it has a public duty to act in uh, the general public well-being. Now, you might argue that if you're a millionaire and you want to build a crazy house that's completely out of view of anyone else, that you... They don't have that right, but most buildings aren't like that. Most buildings are in an urban context, and therefore they have a duty, I think, at least, to contribute to the urban realm in a sustainable and and um, holistic, I suppose, if I can bring that word in, uh, way. Yes, wonderfully summarized. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not sure that many architects necessarily think that way, or that, or that it's hard to make that argument to your client when you can't very easily quantify the variables that you're trying to put across to them. Like it's, it's, it's a difficult argument to make to, to your client to say, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that, when they're trying to do um, cost-saving on, on their building for whatever reason. No, but wait a minute. That was through 20 years ago. Today, there is so much published information that you can summarize for a client and convince a client. So the situation has changed drastically, uh, largely as a, as a result of the efforts of uh, my colleagues and friends and, and other people who are working in the same area, whom I not necessarily uh, know directly. There's a huge amount of, 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 of data gathering and uh, publication uh, in, in accessible language. So what used to be stuck and archived in experimental psychology journals and in medical, the medical literature we, we have taken and other colleagues of mine have taken and have translated into architectural language and now it's available. Mm. Of course, the architectural establishment has no clue about this, but that, that, you know, that's another matter. You want to talk to the client. You can, there's enough, overwhelmingly uh, enough information to convince the client of the of the well-being of the user of the building and the and the client who pays for the building should be concerned with the well-being say if it's a bank they will want the people working inside this building to feel healthy they will want the the bank client who has to approach the building 
say in a pedestrian way to be able to see the entrance and find the entrance uh, welcoming. Otherwise, uh, uh, it, it is uh, stress-inducing just to approach the building. You know, unless, uh, as some architects do, we envision a dystopian world where, where you just uh, drive to a building, enter with your car, park in the garage, and then go and do your business there. You know, that's a totally dystopian world, uh, which is unfortunately being built all over the world today. But uh, it's not the kind of world I want to live in. Mm. Well, going back to slightly contradict my own point from earlier about the, the contrast between sort of so-called traditionalism and modernism and there not being a middle ground, I have been encouraged to see that there is, especially at the smaller scale around like small housing schemes and that kind of thing and things like small schools, there is a more of a merging of some more, I guess, holistic or more traditional elements of architecture with a modernist aesthetic or modern aesthetic in in a sort of vernacular way. I, or you might call it vernacular modernism, I suppose. And that there is that beginning of emerging, I, I guess, as a necessity of it being more client-focused or less showy in the sense it's not a star architect project. It's not the ego thing you mentioned earlier. It's not the power play. It's just that there's a hangover from small architect X who has been taught the way they've been taught and they therefore design some houses or a school or something in a particular way. But I have seen more architects begin to use more ornamental elements, even within modern buildings, um, which is encouraging. But I don't sense that they really understand why it is they're doing that or the extent to which they should be doing it to make their buildings so much better. What you say is a phenomenon, and, and we cannot really discuss it without visuals, but of course, we're mm -hmm. just uh, chatting, we don't have visuals. However, I want to raise the warning flag in that um, in order to achieve a holistic architecture, you need to achieve a visual and tectonic coherence. It's impossible if you have modernist visual elements which try to undo holism and coherence and put them together with more traditional elements that try to achieve holistic architecture. The two are opposite, they're opposing each other. You will, you will always get the disjointed, the whole, the, the result will be disjointed and, and trying to tear itself apart. And uh, unfortunately, our, our architects today are not trained in order to, to create a holistic architecture. So even though they may introduce say ornament, the ornament will look like it's stuck on and, and, and ridiculous. And uh, it's very, very unfortunate because that gives the, the so-called architecture critics a target to say, you know, look, this architect tried to put ornament and it looks stupid. Well, you know, perhaps it does look stupid because the poor architect was not trained in holistic design. And the design techniques that, uh, that my friends and I, beginning from, from Alexander and before that, uh, have developed where you can really uh, uh, create coherence so that you don't notice something sticking out, okay? And you don't have to go even very far back, uh, you know, to, to, to contemporary uh, mismatch design to find that even in historical design, you have a wonderful Romanesque church, okay? And then some somebody, uh, some cardinal went and put some Rococo additions. Well, they stick out like a sore thumb, you know, it's, each individual piece is beautiful, but it's not holistic because whoever did this ruined the original cohesion, should have left it alone. 
and introduce something that this doesn't go with the uh, with the remainder. Mm. Yeah, well, going back to structural order, part of it, else you mentioned, was um, paired contrasting elements on a small scale and how that fits into um, sort of functional ornament or ornament that works well. And the, the, the best example for me for this is when you get um, like an entrance to a cathedral or something and you have the multiple layers of stonework that go back and you'll get one that's highly banded and then there'll be a plain one and then there'll be one that's highly ornamented in a different way and then a plain one and then there's another one that's ornamented in a completely different way and then there's a plain one. And because there's that, that interaction, there's that um, sorry, alternating ornamented versus less ornamented, more ornamented, less ornamented, more ornamented. That creates a sense of ornament that's much better and much more functional and doesn't sort of blend. As you said, it doesn't feel stuck on. It feels part of it. How practically do people apply that to buildings they put in today, would you say? Uh, not at all, unless, unless they have trained their uh, intuition very well. But most architects have their intuition totally ruined after finishing architecture school. Now, what you mention uh, is part of the toolkit uh, of the combines my results with Christopher Alexander's 15 uh, fundamental properties, which are geometrical properties. And one of these geometrical properties is the alternating repetition, which is exactly, it fits what, what you describe. So this is just a, a, um, a, a rhythm, a rhythm on the same scale, translational symmetry with alternation. This is part of a toolbox. So as I mentioned earlier, structural order has fractals as one component. Then you have uh, nested symmetries, and then you have uh, other things like... Um, uh, uh, you, you have the fractals that go with the scaling, like the nested arches is part of a fractal, but it's not a, um, uh, it, it is more of a self-similarity. And then you have the, 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 uh, uh, the alternating repetition, which part is a part of translational symmetry, but you also have rotational symmetry and reflectional symmetries. And, and the, the best effect is done by nesting all these symmetries together in a way that is coherent. So, so the, the end result has to be absolutely coherent. And then you also have the vertical axis, not for any mathematical reason, but because of our uh, 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 sensor, our inner ear senses the vertical axis because of the gravity. And we need to refer to the vertical axis. That's, it's biology, it's not mathematics. So, but when you design something, you use the mathematics of the vertical axis. How many architects you see who deliberately violate the vertical axis, who do something uh, uh, slanted? Why do they do that? It is because they're sadistic psychopaths. You know, I'm sorry to say that, but it, it is going against um, the, the human unconscious responses to forms that create anxiety. This is deliberate creation of anxiety, and I have no excuse for that. I cannot. Um, uh, uh, accept any possible excuse. Mm. Well, it's it's difficult. I imagine I'm, I'm thinking of my time back as a student, as an undergraduate and a postgrad. In postgrad, it's easier because you have more freedom. But as an undergrad, it often feels quite difficult to go against what your professors are saying, not least because you don't really have the basis or the knowledge on which to argue against what they're saying or, or, or offer alternative opinions. How would you recommend that your typical undergraduate architecture student or, or postgrad goes about teaching themselves the kinds of things that they need to know to create sort of beautiful, holistic architecture? 
Yes, fortunately, I have the solution right here. <laughs> I taught a course, um, Unified Architectural Theory, twice. And the second time, I put it all online. So that is available, posted online, including 10 video lectures and all the material is free online. So any architect, uh, student, undergraduate or postgraduate or practicing architect anywhere around the world can um, follow this course free online and teach themselves. Uh, it so happens that uh, several universities in India are going to uh, actually assign this to uh, universities and teach it with uh, lecturers uh, starting uh, in a few weeks for credit. But uh, this is available free online, not for credit. Mm. So, I think uh, another thing I'd say is I, I found it quite difficult that there's when you're doing things like technical details, there's a whole library of late 20th century modernist technical details out there, but there's very few using contemporary materials or, or more, at least more up-to-date materials of a non-modernist style. And uh, I remember finding a book, um, Victorian book on brickwork detailing, um, and effectively an equivalent to the modern technical detailing books, but from the Victorian period. Um, which was incredibly useful, but it was quite difficult to translate the building technologies of that time uh, into the building technologies of today whilst retaining all of the interest in the ornament and the ways they've done it and the ways things were detailed. So are there particular, I guess, buildings or particular books that people can study to learn the sort of technical and detailing and, and I suppose, ornamenting knowledge that they need to know to create the sort of beautiful and holistic buildings? I don't think so. What you have now are, are my books, which are they're written by mathematical physicists, so you're not going to get brick detailing. <laughs> uh, uh, you have uh, Christopher Alexander's books, uh, which uh, cover how he solved some problems using contemporary materials to create ornaments for today. So especially volume three of The Nature of Order is, is hands-on uh, uh, building and, and including ornaments. And his experiments, he did many experiments in, in ornament. So, you know, uh, don't come to me for that, but that does exist. And when you dig into um, people who, who, who have worked um, uh, and followed Alexander, you see that uh, there are, uh, there's a tremendous uh, inventiveness in these architects who are not well known. But they have done uh, wonderful buildings, and all under the radar, of course, because they're marginalized by the mainstream. So um, as far as books, I would say, um, uh, this Christopher Alexander's The Nature of Order, Volume 3. However, uh, uh, students who want to learn that, how to do that today should look at contemporary architects who, uh, who are flying under the radar. <clears throat> And, are there and, any names in particular or any architects you know of that are doing this kind of work that people should look at? I, I'm reluctant to name names, but you have on the one hand, um, one group of, of uh, Alexandrian architects, many in the United States and some in Europe, and they can be located through the Building Beauty program, which uh, teaches Alexander's uh, books to, to, a, uh, to, to uh, online classes. 
And uh, we have our friends, the classical architects, of which you have many in the UK. And even if you don't want to learn to design classical buildings, they are concerned with the tectonics and the small scale uh, creation of ornament. And they don't all use carved stone because it's so expensive. Uh, many of them uh, have worked out how to uh, create a very nice ornament using contemporary materials with very cheap industrial methods that look very nice and make make a building affordable mm. so you know, I've, between... I've, I've been two minds about the classicism because i've having come from a pudinite uh inspiration my love of gothic and my general hatred of uh of um classicism is is conflicting in my mind between my love of ornament versus my distaste of minimalism um so it, look, it's... Bruce, <laughs> you cannot be prejudiced you asked me a specific question and i gave you a specific <laughs> answer uh, traditional architects who practice today faced exactly the problem that you mentioned, how to, how to create something wonderful and adaptive uh, using contemporary materials or, 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 or uh, innovative ways of using traditional materials in ways that are not so extremely uh, prohibitively expensive. So those practitioners have solved some of the problems that, that you refer to, and I'm just referring you back to them. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's good definitely good to study uh study it in more detail um in terms of the uh, you mentioned biophilic design as part of your uh theory i'm massively interested as i said in in um biophilic design in the sense of uh biointegration and bioreceptivity i.e the ability of buildings to become ecosystems and become um structures for nature and for for um the local wildlife effectively whether that's plant-based or animal-based um to me there's a big opportunity within the use of ornament to do it in such a way that maximizes the surface area of a building um and also provides habitat to um natural systems plants etc to generally increase urban greening without the need for very, very intricate, quite fragile systems like green walls. Do you think that's part of the solution for biophilic design or is it practically not going to work that well and you just need to stick to more conventional, conventional ways of doing biophilic design? My answer to your statement is yes, but it is a second order effect. Let me explain what I mean. Biophilic design uh, means that you create the building itself so that it connects with the human user in the same way that the human user connects to a natural environment by biological organisms. So you need to have um, the geometry of the actual inanimate materials mimic the mathematics of biological organisms, which includes what we have discussed prior to this, the fractals, the nested symmetries, and the, you know, the vertical axis, et cetera, et cetera. Added to that, the actual presence of plants, if possible, and that, you, you, that gives you a biophilic building. Now, the second order effect is that once you achieve the biophilic building, you're in a state of mind that you want to connect to the nature outside, and then you can green it up and get an effective solution. And I want to contrast this 
with the false solution where a modernist architect will take a concrete cube and then put a roof garden on top. It doesn't work. It is jarring. Okay, you can make it work. It's extremely expensive, but it is it is philosophically uh, contradictory because you you have the the uh, the building made from the materials in a totally anti-biophilic way. And then you add some green on it. Well, it's, it, is a, it, it is a contradictory philosophy. The, the way you explain it works because it is, uh, 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 you have all the forces acting in the same direction to create something that is adaptive to its, to its environment. And that's really the only sustainable solution long-term. Mm. And moving into the sort of the weeds of the of the theory on that and kind of relates to the same thing. Uh, you mentioned entropy in your book. And I've sort of tried to tie in how entropy relates on a sort of more very fundamental philosophical level uh, to architecture. How, first of all, does entropy play into your architectural theory? What What is it for people who don't know what it is for a start? And how does it factor into your architectural theory? Entropy is disorder. And uh, for architecture, we'll, we'll say it's visual disorder. So you take a, uh, a box of toothpicks and throw them on the floor, and you have a total entropy because they're randomly uh, aligned. If you carefully align them to make some sort of pattern, then you are reducing the entropy. And at the same time, you're creating a pattern. You are introducing symmetries, connectivity. That's what architecture is. Now, uh, some, some architects deliberately break up the form. This is deconstructivism. You know, you break up the form and by injecting randomness for no good reason except for visual shock. So that's entropy being uh, embedded into uh, an architectural design, into a building. Uh, the, the, the human mind reacts very negatively. It's, it's stressed by, by seeing this entropy um, embodied into form. So, so uh, uh, all the tools of design that uh, I have alluded to, to create a, human, uh, a humanly adaptive design are really uh, methods of reducing the entropy, the visual entropy. Yeah, I think that, I mean, we mentioned politics and stuff earlier. I think there's a, a philosophical divide as well, where um, there's an inclination, I think, in, in the kind of things that I think you and I both believe, where the desire to order things is, is seen as a good thing. Whereas philosophically, a lot of architects see excess order um, as a bad thing, and there has to be a sort of level of randomness or chaos, and that that's more desirable um, somehow. And that I, I don't know entirely where that comes from, but it's it seems to me quite a damaging thought that there has to be a level of disorder in in buildings, and that, that tends to, given the fact that a building has to be extremely ordered to be built. It always manifests itself on a sort of large formal level. I think Herzog and Demure are the worst um, offenders for me on this, where they where you end up with a building that's clearly visually attempting to be disordered, but ultimately it has to be built somehow, and therefore it ends up looking very artificial, artificial disorder rather than actual sort of organic disorder, I suppose. 
I think what you're referring to is a manifestation of the ignorance of architects about disorder and order. Um, in order to create a building, you have to uh, use certain physical materials that have to be ordered. Uh, you may play tricks, sort of sadistic tricks, and use materials to embed visual disorder into a building. For what reason? It's, it's bad for the user's um, psychological health. It's, it's just a trick. But um, such tricks are the currency of uh, contemporary architecture. Uh, all the worst and most harmful tricks of architecture, going back to the, to the Bauhaus, have attached to them um, explanations that are totally stupid and spurious. So the, there's no, <laughs> there is no trick that, that creates horrible inhuman buildings that doesn't have an explanation attached to it. And, and architects you know, are inventive in their explanations. If they would only um, use their intelligence and inventiveness to create humanly <laughs> appropriate buildings, we would have a much better world. Mm. Well, let's end on a subject that provides a large part of the income base for most architects, which is retrofit. Um, what is the, given the amount that has been built now, especially in the late 20th century, the, the urban expansion, and this, I suppose this is more of an issue in places where, like the US where you are than where I am, where a lot of the housing stock is sort of Victorian or Georgian. Um, but given the amount that has been built in the late 20th century, what is the right philosophy for retrofitting um, those sorts of buildings? Let's say you're not either whether you're a giant master planner and you're putting in a new or, or a council, I suppose, and putting in large blocks within urban areas, or even if you're an individual architect who's asked to do an extension on the back of a late 20th century house of some kind. You see a million examples of that where they've gone full contrast. They've gone, say, it's a brick building. They've, they've done some, I don't know, angular metal thing or something that's very, very different in some visual, in visual ways, both formally and materially, to the building that it's next to. That's one philosophy. Someone like Voise or um, Lutyens working in the early 20th century would have done completely the opposite philosophy and they would have made it almost completely impossible to tell which bit of the building was old and which bit was new. What is the appropriate philosophy, do you think, for retrofitting holistic, beautiful extensions and additional architectural elements onto a predominantly modernist architectural uh, built environment? I will answer your question, but I will um, throw out the premise that you <laughs> introduced. I would say that someone who is charged with a retrofit should take my online course or listen to my <laughs> online course to get a, a basis of feeling for what is appropriate and what is adaptive, and then face the existing structure to see how far the existing structure can be um, uh, changed with uh, uh, additions or, or uh, um, uh, renovations according to the budget available. And I think 85% uh, 
of, of, of the existing structures can be uh, improved, vastly improved with very minimal interventions. Uh, there are certain geometries that are just too hideous and too inhuman, and those have to be uh, bulldozed. But, but, but those are, tend to be the exceptions. Uh, and I mean minimal interventions like coat of paint or, or uh, put a frame around the window. Um, and yeah, it then, does uh, always amaze me how many new houses or, or modernist aesthetic, the sort of vernacular modernism, how, how they all have no window surrounds at all. How you have this sort of the either brick or often slip brick facades that cut into the window and there's no surround, there's no nothing. And same on the doors, obviously. There's no visual break. It's like a, a hole has been just punched through the visual fabric. Um, which is deliberate, obviously, because yes, yes. that's very, the very deliberate. Yes, very deliberate to create anxiety by well, eliminating the fractal. It would. I don't dismiss that it. It uh, instills anxiety, but I wouldn't suggest that your average architect thinks of it that way when they're doing it. Does your low-level mafia? operative think they're doing something wrong by going and, and bullying a shopkeeper to take the monthly um, extortion. It's part of business, okay? So architects have been trained through the architecture school that, you know, this cutout uh, window is the way to do it. Because why? Because, uh, well, it goes back to the Bauhaus. This is good. So, you know, they, they do it without thinking. Mm. I'm trying to raise the, the awareness level of our society that this induces anxiety. And as we, as we talked earlier, it increases building costs because you don't have the frame, you don't have the, uh, that little trim. And uh, going back to the theoretical uh, rantings of the modernist architects, that we're looking for the sealant between the glass and the and the wall, the perfect sealant to create this uh, pure form. That's totally ridiculous. There is no perfect sealant. If you would only use a frame, a frame and a trim, you don't need this magical sealant, which still it doesn't work. Yeah, and and it doesn't last as well. I think that's no. This is one of the things. If you're going to create a sustainable building that lasts a good amount of time and can be retrofitted later on or reused in a different way. You don't want to create a building where all the seals are going to break after 20 years or all, all, all the like delicate materials or delicate cladding you put on has to be replaced after 30 or 40 years. Like, that's exactly. not sustainable. We have been building unsustainably for a century. Traditional building is far, far more sustainable. We don't want to admit it. Uh, all the uh, nonsense written about sustainability in the press is totally misleading. Uh, they take a, a, an unsustainable typology like the glass skyscraper and then they put double uh, double uh, panes on it. Oh, it increases the energy used, you know, by 3%. That, that's stupidity. You have, you have something that's basically unsustainable and energy wasting. It cannot be fixed. We, yeah. we had the techniques earlier and we, we threw them away. Yeah, well, I think that's why it's so important to study the, the sort of techniques that are used in a more passive way and in more traditional architecture, because just because you study something doesn't mean you have to do it exactly the same way. Like you wouldn't just because you're studying the old master's paintings doesn't mean you're necessarily going to do something that looks exactly the same. Like you can take old technologies or old ideas and you can apply them in new ways. Um, 
but you just need to get past this idea that somehow it's taboo to study old buildings. Yes, one second, Bruce. If you study old master paintings until they seep into you, and then you're a painter, then you output something that has a certain level of beauty without copying them. The same thing, if you're an architect and you study the traditional techniques that lead to feeling of well-being, then you create something totally innovative today that has the same uh, feeling of well-being from it. And you can use any materials you want, anything that's available, save costs, use you know, new technology. Mm. But, but well, you, you put your finger on it. There's the taboo. If you don't break the taboo, you will always be stuck in this uh, 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 modernist uh, cult world that you say, I cannot put a frame on my window. I cannot paint the inside of, 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 of my house. It has to look gray. You know, or, or, or an important building, an art museum has to have this horrible uh, concrete, the raw concrete surface on it. You know, well, it's it is, a taboo. It, it's interesting to me how much, how many more times postmodernism seems to be popping up these days, almost as a reaction to modernism, but in the sense that no one really knows what else to do. So let's just revive the 1980s. <laughs> and it's kind of comical. Well, yeah, no, no, no. Well, what you say is tragic because the architectural cult is so insular, so stuck within themselves, they're unable to look across the fence. So in order to react to what's obvious, obviously inhuman, which is the high style modernism, they go to the postmodernism, which is totally stupid and silly. But there are solutions out there. Just look over the fence. You know, you have humane architecture. Look at the favelas around the world, the slums around the world. These people without architectural training are creating human environments with junk materials. Okay, learn from these people. They know more than your star architects. And they, they can find some, you know, discarded paint and they paint their houses and they ornament their houses. And, and these are people on, on, on the very edge of being able to stay alive. And they create wonderful spaces with, with all these terrible uh, problems that they have. Architects, open your eyes. J just look at, 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 at uh, the intrinsic architectural talents of the human, of the human animal. That those architectural talents are suppressed and destroyed through architecture school. By, mm. by imprinting a series, a set of images that are totally inhuman. That's why it's so difficult for architects to, to do what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, to, to retrofit something that's ugly. Well, it should be easy to someone. How do I retrofit this? You know, make it prettier. Well, a, a, a real trained architect cannot take those steps, cannot imagine this because of the block, the mental block. Mm. Let's talk about isms. We have modernism. We have postmodernism. I, I suppose we have traditionalism as a catch-all term. Patrick Schumacher, who I talked to a couple of years ago, uh, has tried to introduce parametricism. What, um, and you can argue about the pros and cons of that. I think there's some good things. There's a lot of bad things. Do we need another ism? Um, will there be another ism? When we're having this conversation in the year 2100, and we're looking back at the history of early 21st century architecture, what's going to be the ism after modernism and postmodernism? 
I don't know. I have an answer to that. Uh, these labels are created from within the architectural cult. They don't represent what humanity is like or what humanity needs in the built environment. What humanity needs in the built environment is just adaptive design, adaptive construction, human scale cities uh, that are neurologically responsive. There should be no ism here. But I can very well see uh, the little click of, of the uh, top architectural establishments of creating another ism just to um, continue their hegemony on the, uh, on the profession. Uh, I don't have much hope. Mm. Well, uh, it seems to me that the, um, the sort of the strong philosophical base of early modernism, whether good or bad, seems to have petered out and people have lost the yearning for something really philosophically strong there's no real movement it's just sort of what what was modernism is just ticking over and sort of fading in various directions depending on where you are and that like for me the word holistic is the best word that um to encompass what it is that we need architecture to be moving forward um and that's that's sort of a word that's has associations which aren't always positive, but I think can be sort of reclaimed in the sense that it's meant to mean. Um, but but I guess it depends what what sort of direction you're trying to take architecture in. The sustainable is obviously the word that's most in in vogue, quite rightly, in my opinion. And it's it's good that sustainability is um, is becoming more is more important. But as long as you don't sort of yeah, use it with perverse incentives. The word, sustain, the word sustainable is totally abused. It's a joke. It's a, a so-called sustainable buildings are a joke. You know, they, they improve performance by 3%. You know, it's ridiculous. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, you're a young architect. You coin the new ism. You know, it's up to young architects to coin the new ism. And, you know, and go for it. Um, you know what the uh, what the problems are. You know what the solutions are. You need holism. You need um, adaptation to ne the neurology, uh, neurological responses of the human body, which, as as you correctly pointed out, uh, is totally ignored by the architectural establishment. This is the new thing. If architecture is going to survive, no, maybe it doesn't. Maybe you'll get another stupid uh, superficial uh, ism. And then um, the, the media will take off with that and we will continue to have inhuman architecture for another hundred years. There is no guarantee that people will wake up from their uh, occult-induced uh, uh, stupidity and manipulation. You know, people are easily manipulated and unfortunately the most intelligent people are the worst offenders because they get fanatical about uh, supporting the cult. Mm. Well, well, I'm not optimistic. You know, I'm older than you and I'm not optimistic at all. <laughs> Well, I try to be optimistic. I try to. I, I, I get various signals one way or the other as to whether it's justified to be optimistic, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm hopeful that there's enough of a movement in enough areas that coincide enough with the principles that we're talking about that the momentum will build up and things will start to change. But maybe I'm naive. <laughs> No, I, I hope you're right, and uh, it needs uh, young people like you to be optimistic. And um, I, for one, can tell you, 
that you would not be doing what you're doing now, say 30 years ago. It would have been impossible. The, In what the, sense? The, oh, you would have been uh, censored. Oh, I see. <laughs> the, the, world, the world was not ready. Okay, maybe people don't like what you are saying now. And I have, I have watched your other interviews. You are bringing ideas to the table to change architecture for the better. You would not be allowed to do that 30 years ago. The, 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 the establishment was not ready to allow you to do that, or you may have you know, done it and you would be totally marginalized. So the time is ripe now for, for, a, for a change. And, and, and you, are, you have come from inside the establishment, not like me. I came from mathematical physics, from way from the outside. You have come from the inside and you have uh, realized the need for a change. So this is a, uh, a, a big plus that I see. So, you know, you have cause for optimism. <laughs> well, I'll try to stay optimistic. All right, well. Thank you very much, Nikos. It's been wonderful talking to you. Um, I would encourage everybody to read all of your books, but especially my favorite one, which is A Theory of Architecture. Um, and of course, we have the newest edition or revised version of A Pattern Language, A New Pattern Language for Growing Regions. Do you want uh, to say anything say else something. about that? Yes, yes. That is, is not a revised version. It is 80 additional patterns to ah. complement the original uh, 235 patterns of Christopher's pattern language. And good news for all the listeners of this program. The new pattern language, thanks to the chief uh, author, Michael Mahaffey, is free on the internet. So, you know, you buy the book only if you want to have it handy, which I strongly recommend, but it is free on the internet, which follows our philosophy of. Um, of open access to to give people uh, access to these design tools. Mm. Yeah, well, hopefully people will read those and many other books and study the old masters, both artistic and architectural, and hopefully produce some beautiful holistic buildings moving into the future. So, Nikos, so. Th thank you very much for your time, and it's been wonderful to talk to you, and I uh, hope to hear from you again soon. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks a lot.